0: here. We are in um, Hebrews 11 still. What's the theme of Hebrews 11? Faith. But really, what is it faith in? It's faith in what is to come. Each one of these people that we're talking about, these heavyweights from the Old Testament specifically, they had their eye on the prize. And our author of Hebrews is trying to paint the picture. He's trying to tell them that Although everything you knew and you thought you knew about the old covenant isn't really exactly what it was, it's now coming into clear focus because of the new covenant, the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant. What in fact did Jesus die for and what in fact are we working for? And that is we're working towards a goal and that goal is the promised land. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and the new earth. And the one common denominator of all of these faithful patriarchs is that they didn't get to see the promise. They didn't get to see it fulfilled. They tasted it. They smelt it. But they didn't see it in its full completion. And so he's telling them and he's encouraging them that you have to have faith. And then he goes through all of these different people. And today we're getting down to... um, It's really an interesting uh, concept and take on this. It never ceases to amaze me when we go through all these different people that illustrated faith. I'm like, well, how is this pertinent to this whole theme? And then once you dig in, it's really incredible and awesome. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 30 and 31, which is very connected to what we just read in the Old Testament. It says, by faith, The walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Remember that number? By faith, Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. How many of you here, when you were growing up in grammar school, considered yourself to be a playground gladiator? I wasn't necessarily that much of a gladiator, but I do remember one time growing up. I bounced around to different grammar schools about the fifth or sixth grade. I went to a grammar school in Trenton, uh, and I found out that every day during recess, when we would go out to the blacktop, the parking lot, there was basketball hoops and there was footballs being thrown around. But I came to find out that it was nothing really at all what it looked like. It looked like a playground, but I've come to find out, not too long after being there, that it was a battleground. Right around the corner of where the blacktop the, the, the was, was all these big yellow school buses were parked. And it was hidden from the school, it was hidden from where the teachers could see you. And so there was a whole nother world of activity around that side, and not many people went over there Because if you did, you knew you would be susceptible to all sorts of interactions. It's a place where the bullies did their business. It's where a lot of fist fights happened. If you had any sort of trouble in school that day, an argument or anything like that, and you ended up over in that corner, chances are you could end up, and there was no rules, You know, you could end up being sucker punched, groin kicked, or whatever the case may be. Oftentimes, they would have a circle, and they would just push two guys in there that had an argument, and they would duke it out the old-fashioned way. But one thing that I realized was that if you went there, and you were just an innocent bystander, you would end up becoming a target. You had to do more than just stand your ground. You had to be constantly on the offense, Because if you were on the defense or you were sitting there neutral, you would be singled out and you oftentimes would be challenged. I found out very quickly that if you mistook the battleground for a playground, you would be in trouble in that area. In football, we say that offense wins games, but defense wins championships. The only thing a defensive mentality does in that sort of situation on the school battleground is it makes you more of a target. An offensive mentality will intimidate the enemy or at least let them know that you're not going to go down without a fight. And isn't this so true when you think about the application of this to the Christian life? We often desire the playground side of the Christian life when all along it's nothing of the sort. It's a battleground. You will constantly be challenged as a believer. Victorious kingdom work, gospel proclamation, battling sin, Defeating and wrangling with the forces of darkness is hardly a work of defense alone. You will be challenged, you will be bullied, you will be sucker punched unless you do more than stand your ground. You must be involved in a consistent work of offense as a Christian. You have to be on the offensive, an offensive assault towards the enemy. Jesus told us to storm the gates, not to stand back and wait for the gates to storm us. Matthew 16, 18, I say to you that you are Peter, talking to the Apostle Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This implies an offensive attack by the Christian. Although the war is spiritual that we're talking about here, The war certainly plays itself out in the physical. Now this we must attack head on and not be surprised when casualties and wounds occur in this battle. This sort of war that we are in is bloody. And why is it bloody? Because lives are at risk. Souls are at risk. We live in the battleground for the lives of actual, real people. It's not a playground for games. This calls for a consistent faith and a consistent offensive stance and action in order to overcome the enemy and claim the land that is ours in the gospel. Now, we see this very much played out <clears throat> Excuse me in our passage today. The conquest of the land was a very vicious, deceptive, and bloody battle. It's a story of God and his people together going on the offensive, not on the defensive, but on the offensive for the kingdom of God. On various levels behind this text, and really right in the actual text, we see this offensive strategy for engagement by faith in order to take the land and to defeat the enemy. And so the first part of this I want to talk about is the actual initial conquest of the land. Because we read in our passage, it's in verse 30, it says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. But before this, in the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittah, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So what had happened thus far is that God had delivered, excuse me, the people from Israel, uh, delivered Israel out of bondage, out of Egypt. And they had taken 40 years Wandering through the wilderness to ultimately get to the place that God had promised them and offered them initially after about a year and a half in the wilderness. You remember, Joshua and Caleb came back after the 12 spies went into the land, and they came back with a good report, but everybody else was scared. They were terrified of the giants in the land. Don't ask me how, after God had just wiped out an entire army right in front of them miraculously. They were scared of what stood in front of them. So God said, none of you are going to end up in this to even see the promised land. So all that first generation died. All their children were raised up. And now their children were right at the 40 year mark. 40 years in the wilderness where they were about to go into the land. And Joshua was the man that was going to take them in. He was the new Moses very appropriately named Joshua or Yeshua, the same name of Christ. Joshua is, as we'll see, a type of Christ in this area. But he first sends two people in to go spy out the land. I don't know if you know, but espionage has a long historical documentation in the annals of history. It's well over 6,000 years. Couriers delivered messages between cities, But important messages were also relayed between a series of outposts by using something called a semaphore, which is a form of communication that uses flashing lights, almost like a visual Morse code. And these would go on for miles and miles. And what would happen is spies would go into the land and they would make key contacts and they would share strategy and they would have different lights and symbols and things like that to indicate when was the time to move forward with the plan. We see spy activity. Uh, when Joseph, right, he was in Egypt and his brothers went in. And what were they accused of by, the Pharaoh, or by Pharaoh and the people of Egypt? Well, Joseph sort of tongue-in-cheek accused them of, you guys are spies. Because this was a regular thing that would happen. And again, Moses sent those 12 spies into the land as well. So it's not surprising that Joshua did the same. So he sends these spies into the land. There's two of them. And they go to Rahab's house, who was a prostitute, which we're going to talk about next. But she hears of the Lord and how he delivered Israel from Egypt and how God delivered two kings into their hands. And she comes out and really professes that she knows that God is the God of heaven and the God of earth. But the key point here in number one is that these two spies took an offensive position, an offensive strategy, And they went spying into the land. But a closer investigation of this will show you what their true purpose was. I don't know if some of you are old enough to know that there was a a big Cold War that happened back in the 1950s and 60s between the communist countries and the the American uh, allies and so forth. Capitalists versus communists. And there was a lot of spy activity that was going on. It was actually the number one form of warfare at that time, was spies and double spies and all sorts of things. And also at that time, there was great technology that was coming up, coming up in, in, throughout history, one of which was the spy plane. A spy plane that could fly twice as high as any regular airplane with super-focused cameras, and they would take these pictures, and they would send the pictures back, and Analysts would look and see, well, they have bombs here and they're moving troops there and so forth and so on. Well, there was one incident by a, by a spy named Gary Powers. He was flying what they called a U-2 spy plane in 1960. Well, the Russians saw this spy plane flying over their territory, and what did they do? They fired a missile and they hit it. His plane started to go down. So Gary Powers parachutes out. He lands safely, but he's behind enemy lines. The Russians take him, and they interrogate him. They put him in prison for three years for these crimes. And the problem was a lot deeper than that. And the reason why was because Russia and the United States had just come off of working out a tremendous peace treaty. All the nuclear tensions that were happening all went away. I wasn't alive at that time, but maybe some of you were, and I heard and read about it, that it was very, very a dangerous time. They, at any minute, they would do drills in schools, and you probably saw that in the movies. Nuclear war, sirens, and that sort of thing. After Hiroshima and Japan, and the other one that dropped, this was a very serious threat. So finally, we have, we have Dwight Eisenhower and, and Nikita Khrushchev. Right before this incident, they met <clears throat> and they worked things out, and the whole world was celebrating. But then this happened, and shortly after, there was one of those United Nations meetings, and Nikita Khrushchev just simply went off. <laughs> he said, "This is done. We are no longer going to have any sort of peace treaty because of the action that was took." You see, spies going in to a land do much more than just get recon and get information. What they're doing is, when they, especially when they get caught, they are sending a message. And it's a message of war. It says here in Joshua 6, 17 and 25, it refers to these spies as messengers. It says, the city shall be under the ban and all that is in it that belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. They were called messengers because they were doing something much bigger and much more important than just gathering information. They were sending a very clear signal to the enemy that you're about to go down. And when we see this in Scripture, we see that God always uses this offensive tactic of sending messengers ahead of his conquest. Joshua sending messengers is a type of Christ sending his gospel messengers ahead into the towns to announce the gospel of the kingdom of God. In Luke 10, 1, it says, Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he says, Go, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Do you know that the word apostle means messenger? That's the actual meaning of the word. The word messenger can also mean angel. And we see a lot of this interactive changing of these words meant to illustrate what it is when you as a Christian are going out into the land. You are going out as a representative of Christ. You are going out to show and to share a message that what has been given to us by God is going to come to pass. And it's going to come to pass through battle through victory, and through war. And I'm applying this now, obviously, to spiritual warfare and going forward as messengers in the kingdom. You and I, and we have to get this, we are sent in to occupied territory. Now, again, I don't mean to say that, oh, this is Satan's world. And we're sort of undercover Christians and we have to be careful because he's the ruler of this world. In a sense, he is the ruler of the prince of the power of the air. But he's only under the dominion and authority of Christ who took that supreme authority back at the cross when he redeemed not only each individual who believes in him, but redeemed the creation back to God. He bought that deed of the earth and it came back rightfully in the, in the justice and righteousness of God. It came back to God through Christ. We know when one country invades another country in war, and that country takes over that country, let's say, for instance, although this hasn't quite happened, thankfully, but Russia, we know, has invaded Ukraine. Did the Ukrainians just say, oh, yeah, here you go, come on in, we're done? No, they gave him a vicious battle. And they held him back. But if you imagine for a second if Russia was or ends up becoming successful, do the people of Ukraine that have just been invaded, do they automatically just convert to Russians? No. After every occupation, there comes a ground invasion. You and I are in a ground invasion right now. God has bought the deed back to the earth. He has set up his kingdom. He is seated at the right hand of the father, but he has now sent us into the land ahead of his return to preach the message of the gospel, to really proclaim victory and to proclaim that the enemy has really no stand. The stake is in the ground. The victory has been won. We are now implementing that victory very much so as a blessing that we're able to partake and participate in this. But the real question is, is what are we doing? Are we, in fact, doing that? Now, I know there's so, I really have to say, as an overall, from my perspective as a pastor here, it's amazing the work that you guys are doing. Many of you, I know, are doing so much, right? And no, not everybody knows what you're doing, but we are doing this kingdom work. But we can't get comfortable, because again, we're on the battleground. But I also know that there are many here that are equipped, that are shaped and molded. They're those sharp arrows, but they haven't been put in the pouch yet. They're resisting. I don't know why this could be. It could be fear. It could be self. uh, You're not confident enough. But I have to encourage you that God has gifted every single one of us to be this, these messengers to go out into this land. If your faith is weak, that could be a reason why your assault will also be weak. Your message may be weak. But what you do is you go to God and you offer to him what he has given you back. You know, it's so great that Mary Beth here has volunteered not to put you on the spot. She's volunteered to lead and to coordinate the worship team. I know there are people here that have skills in worship. I know there are people here who could sing. I know there are people here who could play instruments. I know that God has them, but what are you doing with that talent? What are you doing with that gift? I'm not saying you got to run and do it and say, oh yeah, here I am. But you should be praying about it. You should be asking the Lord to use you. And this goes in every area of ministry, every area of, of this church, every area in your personal life. What are you doing with what God has given you? You're called to go out and preach that message. Now, the second way faith is expressed with this offensive assault is by the person that the messengers went to, and that's Rahab. And this is one of those passages that I just wish wasn't here. I wish I could just skip over this part. Or better yet, do like a lot of commentaries have done in looking at this and seeing how people handle this very difficult, ethical bear trap, seemingly of Rahab being blessed for lying. That's what she was. Not only that, she was also a prostitute. Now, we love that. We love that she was a prostitute Gentile because it just shows the amazing power of God that he could save the worst of sinners. And he can. So this is an amazing, amazing example of God's grace that the spies go into the land, and where do they go? They get sent to the house of Rahab, who's a prostitute, and they laid there. They dwelt there. That doesn't imply they laid with her, because there's some interpreters that go that direction. I don't think that's what the text says. But it says, by faith, Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient. But afterwards, she had welcomed the spies in peace. Now, Rahab was the least likely ally with the least likely expression of faith. She had the faith to welcome the spies in peace, and that's what we see. But we have to understand that her welcoming of the spies and her being really, James uses her as an example, saying your faith needs to have works. Look at Rahab. She was justified by her works. Her faith was an outplaying. Her works were an outplay of her faith that she had. But wait a minute, James, she lied. Yeah, but a lot of commentators will say, no, you know, she was this really was just, um, you know, she's not being condoned for the lie. She's being condoned for the fact that she hid the spies. But those two are intimately connected. You see, what happened was, as I'll read the the passage to you, she went when they first talked to Rahab. This is in chapter two of Joshua. She said to the spy, she goes, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the terror of you has fallen on all of us. And that all the inhabitants of the land land, have melted away before you. And then she ends and says, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and he is God on earth beneath. But then there's this moral ethical dilemma that when the people came from the king of Jericho, sent messengers to her and says, bring out the spies. And she goes, no, no, I don't have any spies here. She had them hidden on the roof. She actually lied twice. She says, I don't have them here. And secondly, they went that way. <laughs> and they went off. And the spies told her that, you know what? Because you've done this thing, when we come here and wipe this place out, hang this scarlet rope out your window, we'll know that you're on our side and you will be saved. You and your family. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a couple caveats here. First, lying without any exception is condemned in Scripture. And it is an abomination before God. Psalm 5, 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of deceit. And in the New Testament, Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another since you lay aside the old self with its evil practices. Romans 3 8, don't say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. But then on the other side, we see in Scripture oftentimes lying and deception are used and rewarded by God. Now don't leave yet. We see this with the Hebrew midwives, they lied. We already went through this. I didn't talk about it then because I didn't want to have to talk about it twice. But they lied and they were rewarded. God blessed their household. In 1 Samuel 21, David was acting and lying about himself being insane to protect his life. And oddly enough, he writes about this in Psalm 34. He exhorts those who desire to live a long and blessed life to keep their lips from deceit. That's verses 11, 14. He didn't say, if you want to live a long and blessed life, and, you, and you're going to have to sometimes lie. He didn't say that. He never actually even repents of being deceptive. We see Jesus in the parable of the unjust steward in Luke 16, talking about the master commending the unjust steward because of how he dealt shrewdly with the master's servants and debtors. While not approving of the conduct, he did in fact approve of the steward's shrewdness. And then again, I've already referred to this in James 2, 24 to 26. You see that a man is not justified by works and faith alone, or by works and not by faith alone, in the same way, I'm sorry, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them another way? You see, James doesn't necessarily this is one view. This is a view that I don't necessarily agree with. It says, but I'm giving it to you. You don't have to agree with this. I'm I'm going to give you some exhortation, but you could do with this with your life. One view is that James doesn't, again, commend the lie, but the preservation of the spies, even though she employed wicked means. For the midwives, it wasn't their lie that they were rewarded, but they didn't assist in murder. Now we see that Rahab, one view has that she obtained the, the blessing from God, But it wasn't, again, as a reward for lying. It was because of her love towards the people of God, which certainly was there. Now, these seem like really good answers on the surface, but the problem is their act of faith could not have existed without this lie. And if we see God in 1 Kings 22, 21 to 23, he sends a lying spirit. God sends a lying spirit to King Ahab to entice and deceive him. Why can all this happen? Now, this happens for only one reason, because God can never, ever be wrong in his intent. Never. Bad intent and sin and lying are an issue of the heart. Now, why can't we go out and say, well, hey, I could justify every lie now, Pat. I could just say, yeah, I'm doing it for the good of whatever. Whatever. But you see, we as people, as humans fallen in sin, have no capability to use sin good, innocently. We can't use sin for good in an innocent way. But obviously God does. What you meant for evil, God intended for good, as he was, Joseph told his brothers. What you meant, human being, for evil, God didn't allow, didn't sort of close his eyes. He meant intended that evil for good. So that's one way to look at it. You can justify it, maybe. You could sort of not have to deal with that scripture that deeply. And and we're going to talk about this more on Wednesday night. Because I can't say everything I'd like to say. And again, this is a difficult thing to jump into in the middle of this sermon because it's hard to now bring it on back. (laughs) But I have to deal with it here. Another way to look at it is, First, we have to be warned on how we read Scripture. We can't look at Scripture as this wooden, fundamentalist, literalist sort of thing. We have to be very careful that when we, when we interpret Scripture, we always use the context. And we always use the context undergirded by the character of God. And if we do those things, we should not fall in error. God's law, here's another thing that I want you to make sure you get God's law isn't above his character. God doesn't walk around going, "Oh I was going to oh, I can't do that because thou shalt not kill." God doesn't do that. It's the opposite. God is truth, therefore His word is truth. God is truth, therefore His law is right and good. and his laws can never. Contradict each other. Is killing always murder? If you're protecting life, it's not. Is forcibly taking somebody's property? Tenth commandment or eighth commandment. Thou shall not steal. Is that always unlawful? What if that person owes you money and you have a contract that says if they don't pay, you can go to court and get that back? I don't know about you, but I've had a few knocks on my doors back in the day for my car. You know, we're taking your car, Pat. You haven't paid the, 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 no, thou shalt not, you know, don't steal. You're stealing. No, no, they're not. Intercourse isn't always fornication in the context of marriage. Outside of marriage, it is. Lying, according to the word here, isn't always necessarily Mishandling. The truth Again, lying is wrong, and it's condemned all over the Bible, and that's the normative rule. But when it comes to giving the truth to someone who will do evil with that truth, such as murder, the Lord doesn't seem to condemn this act. One great commentary, Matthew Henry said that Rahab knew by what was already done on the other side of Jordan that no mercy was to be shown to the Canaanites and therefore inferred, if mercy was not owed to them, truth was not owed either. If Rahab knew God was giving them the land, would it not have been a sin for her to join those that hindered them from this, from possessing that land? If Rahab had admitted that the spies were up on the roof or she had been silent, I'm not saying anything, you know, she would have betrayed the spies and would not this have been a great sin before God? Corey Tenboom, the Dutch watchmaker and Christian writer, later Christian writer, who helped many Jews escape from the Nazis during the Holocaust by hiding them in their home, lying many times about it, suffered a great moral dilemma in doing it. Her defiance then also led to imprisonment, her family being mistreated, her family being imprisoned. But was she wrong in lying about the whereabouts? Or would she have been a partaker in the evil if she had revealed it? So truth-telling in relation to your neighbor is one thing, but truth-telling to assist God's enemy to do evil against God's people is something else that we have to consider. Chances are none of us here, don't come to me and say, Pat, you know, you tell me you lied, and I, why'd you do that? Well, hey, Pat, you told me it was okay because I was really helping out this person because that was connected to that person. That does not work. We cannot have the ability to do that. The chances are none of us will be in this rare position of having to choose either to tell the truth or to commit murder. To tell the truth or to protect life. But if that does happen, I don't know about you, but I would protect life. Rahab's faith is one-two model. There's not another's like hers in Scripture. This is so unique, this example. Not really in the lie, but in the boldness she took to step out and error on the side of God in a difficult situation. Now I know this, you may say, well, how does this apply? Well, listen, there's, there is a rule in, uh, in the Bible, a law that says we have to submit to government authorities. There's, that's no different than any other law in the Bible. Would you submit to a government authority if they told you you couldn't meet the church anymore? Would you submit to a government authority if they said, hey, your pastor can't speak on homos against homosexuality or else he's going to be fired or get arrested or do anything like that? You would say, well, I hope my pastor doesn't bail out on us like that. If you look at this, truth is always the best weapon for offense going into the kingdom battle. Lies are of the enemy, but truth sets people free. Now, as your pastor I would say that if you have to lie to stop God's enemies from killing someone or God's enemies from using the truth to destroy God's people, I want you just to simply, I'll exhort you to just simply pray. Remember Rahab, as you prayerfully look at this decision to make, again, I don't think it's going to probably happen, but you never know. We are in, like I said, this is a vicious, bloody battle. In war, you have to make difficult decisions decisions to follow god it's not always going to be black and white the line of truth for us in extreme circumstances may be a little blurry but it's never blurry for god he is truth himself now what happened to rahab well she feared god beyond everything else she went on the offensive to pave the way with her faith for the armies of the lord to come in and to take what was theirs her house was spared And most significantly, she was crowned in honor, being one of two women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Her son with Salmon, because she became part of the Jewish culture after that, she converted to Judaism, if that's what you'd like to call it back then. Her son with Salmon was Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, who had Obed, who had Jesse, who had David. So she certainly was blessed for her faith. I would stop now. I know we're going a little bit over, but this is too good. This next point is too good. The third way faith is expressed is in the actual offensive attack on the land, taking it from those who were disobedient against God. Now, this is important to understand that God went in and commanded the armies of Israel to absolutely wipe out man, woman, child, old, young, everybody. Absolutely wipe out a grotesquely violent, totally depraved, and pagan-infested culture beyond anything that I could even explain or feel comfortable about talking about from the pulpit. But if you want to look at some of these, what the practices were of the Amorite kingdom and the Canaanite kingdom, it was very sick. Child sacrifice, I'll just give you a sum. They worshipped the moon god. God wanted them absolutely wiped out. Israel was to utterly destroy them. And it's in how God did this that is so pertinent and beautiful for us today as we storm the gates and as we take pro- uh, pro- proclaim the gospel to push forth and bring forth the kingdom of God. How did he execute this offensive attack? Well, we read that he just didn't use anyone, did we? We read this in, in, in the ch- uh, sixth chapter of Joshua. He just didn't use anyone or any weapon. He used priests, the ark, he used the ram's horn, which is not like the regular trumpet. It's a, what they call a shofar. They use this to invade the land and also for us to model as we do the same. First, we have seven priests. The number seven in the Bible is that number of perfection. It's God's favorite number, they say. And God uses it in such a way really to illustrate that. These seven priests took the ark, they stood in the water, and the Jordan parted like the Red Sea. This is a recapitulation of what happened at the Red Sea. Joshua 3.15 says, The feet of the priests carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, and the water, which was flowing from both sides, rose and stood up in one heap. And those who carried the ark, the priests, they stood firm on the ground while all of Israel crossed through. It wasn't a big cross. It was probably about a quarter mile or so. Not even. And they walked right through on dry land, just like the Red Sea. But the real significant is the pattern of seven. Seven priests, seven times, blowing the ram's horn trumpet seven times as well, happening on the Sabbath day. God told Joshua the following. He said, these seven priests will carry the seven trumpets of ram's horn. Then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times. The priests will blow the trumpet. And then, as we read before, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout. What is seven times seven? His number is 49, of course. What does it point to is what the impertinent important thing is. Well, in Leviticus 25, it talks about something called the Jubilee. You shall count seven Sabbath years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the times of seven Sabbath years shall be to you 49 years. Then you should cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, the Day of Atonement, and you shall make the trumpet sound throughout all the land, and you will consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to its inhabitants it shall be a jubilee for you and each of you shall return to his possessions and return to his family the slaves during the jubilee would be released on that 50th year there would be freedom the people would return all their land back to its original owner all the debts would be completely canceled out and the people all used a trumpet and they blew this trumpet and they made a shout to celebrate this long cry. Really, what it was it was a cry out for this Jubilee victorious celebration. It's actually literally the word Jubilee means trumpet and, and, or, or, and loud and joyful sound. This is what the attack on Jericho is really all about. It's about the people of God going on the offensive to take possession of the land with the deed of the land to proclaim liberty, to proclaim freedom in the fact that God was fulfilling the promise that they would go into this land of milk and honey. The day they went into the land, the matter stopped. They had everything that they needed. God took them in. Now, this is what's called, how does this apply to us? This is what's called a type, okay? This is all a type of what's happening to us right now. A type of the ultimate gospel victory, and the launch of the eternal kingdom at Christ's royal enthronement at his ascension. So, what is a type? The biblical type, listen to this closely, is an Old Testament person, event, or institution that serves as an anticipation of a greater New Testament person, event, or thing, which is then known as the antitype. It's a pointer to a greater fulfillment. It's not a double prophecy. It's a type or anti-type it has to be in Scripture. Or else, otherwise, we could say all oh, these are types of something that's going to happen in the future. No, that can't work. It's got to be in Scripture, the anti-type. So the typology is the meaning of an original Old Testament text that takes on a greater significance in the unfolding plan of God in redemptive history. Which comes to a climax in the New Testament. And this is what we see in this text. Ultimately people this is what it's showing us. We are living as Christ rose from the dead. He brought in that antitype Of that conquest into the promised land. You see it was the physical conquest into the land here. It was the physical freedom that they had here. But it was pointing to the ultimate freedom. That Christ brought in the gospel. It's showing us that when we go on the offensive with the gospel, we are living out this trumpet-blowing jubilee victory that we're all part of right now. It's God's power, man's faith, in this offensive assault to establish the promised land. The beautiful thing is that Jesus, from the very beginning, God, when this whole thing started, what did he do? He appeared to Moses after he was in the wilderness 40 years. He appeared to Moses at the burning bush. And he said, what did did Moses say? You know, he, he asked him what to do. And he said, take off your feet, your shoes. Take off your sandals for the place which you're standing is holy ground. Just before the nation of Israel went into Jericho, Joshua was there. I'm sure contemplating what was going to happen the very next day when he was about to go in and have these priests go and blow this trumpet, the seven priests with the seven trumpets symbolizing the 49th year, symbolizing the entrance into the promised land. It says that it came about when Joshua, Joshua 5:13, when he was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite with him, of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? are you for our adversaries? He said, no, rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the armies of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. And he said, what would you want your servant to do? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Echoing that time when Moses started after that 40 years in the wilderness and he went to deliver Israel out of Egypt. We see this parallel with now Joshua about to go in to storm the gates, showing us, and this is what we must get out of this, that from the very first time that you became a Christian, from your very first marching orders, to go and conquer, to go out and proclaim the gospel, to be that messenger, to have that faith, to go out on the offensive, Jesus is with you while you do it from the very beginning all the way through until the very end. And if we just take that cookie cutter and put it where we're at now, we are just standing. We're fighting in this battle. He is with us and he is going to carry us through until the very end. So we have to go on the offensive. We're called to stake out the land, to deliver the message of freedom through Christ and young people, especially. You that are young, take your life and put it before the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to use my gifts for? Don't be so focused on making money. Bill, you got to be focused on your career. you got to be focused on all that. But lock it in and align it with God's overall purpose for your life. And if I promise you, if you do this, he is going to send you out. He is going to use you in a way that you've never thought possible. And I'm not saying it's gonna shake the world necessarily from everybody's perspective, but be sure he is going to use you and wants to use you for the battle. Know young people especially too that you're not on a Christian playground. Don't be dabbling along those lines of the enemy. Don't be dipping into things you're not supposed to be dipping into, putting your nose in places it's not supposed to be. Keep your feet, stand firm, And keep moving forward, follow the Lord, submitting it all to him. Know that you are in his kingdom battleground, and you're fighting for the very souls and the expansion of his rule, fighting for the souls of men and the propagation and expansion of his rule that will eventually inhabit the earth. And you will have a part in that if you choose by faith to move forward. Okay, so thank you for that. We were going a little bit over, but we are going to have a Lord's Supper today. And I think it's very pertinent that when you really look at the Lord's Supper, that, uh, if, you, if you see uh, the version in Mark 14, to 25, they were eating and he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. But this is the kicker right here. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And if you go to Acts chapter 10, 40 to 41, Peter's given testimony. He said, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God and to us who ate and drank with Him after He arose from the dead. So we are connecting this kingdom that Jesus promised that He would eat again with the disciples. We see again the type and the anti-type. We see Him eating with the disciples after His resurrection and drinking with them in the kingdom which He had launched anew through His blood and through His resurrection. And we too, as we partake in this meal, In this symbolic meal that's looking back to the forgiveness of sins, but also spiritually nourishing us as we fight this kingdom battle. He is with us and he is partaking it with us as we speak and as we do it. He warns us that we should eat this with the right heart. He doesn't say no sinners allowed, but he does say examine yourself. And so as we get ready to examine ourselves, I'll invite Uh, mary beth up and let's really let's really get our hearts right let's get our hearts focused on christ looking back on what he's done and doing in remembrance of him but also looking forward to what he's doing through the power of his blood and through the power of his of the body his bread he is the living he is he is the bread of life and so that's what we're here to celebrate so if I could ask uh, Hubert to come up and Rich, come on up. We'll, we'll pass out the elements.